Welcome to the 50 Shades of Pink, a podcast to celebrate women by BAC Career Club. I am Ong Jui and today we are interviewing Katana Morgan, a policy and advocacy advisor who is currently residing overseas. Now it's time to welcome Katana to 50 Shades of Pink podcast. She will be sharing her expertise in legal field and her experience in working with the NGOs. So hi Miss Katana, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ziyi. Thank you uh, for the wonderful introduction. It is great to be here today and to share my experience with you guys. All right, wonderful. Can we proceed to the first question? Yeah. Could you uh, elaborate on your experience as a policy advisor working overseas? What are the key aspects of your job role? Okay, so I'm currently a policy and advocacy advisor for a non-profit organization in Canberra, Australia. So the key aspects would be basically providing policy recommendations to the Commonwealth government, which is the federal government, and the state governments. So when we uh, make policy recommendations, it's usually based on an invitation that is given to us by Parliament. So Parliament would invite us to submit a policy recommendation on a certain issue. And those issues uh, range uh, very widely. So mostly it's social issues such as cost of living, uh, disaster relief. So Australia had uh, the bushfires a few years ago in 2019. And then they also had these massive floods that happened last year. So those are disaster relief matters. And we also look into Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people rights, mental health, housing crisis. Yeah, a lot of issues. So when we are invited to make recommendations by parliament on any of these matters, so what we do is we have a dedicated research team and also we do our own reading and research as advisors and we will write submissions that will be sent to parliament. So on my per- in, in regards to my personal experience, I've taken, I won't say I've taken the lead, but one of the few tasks that I have been um, assigned to is in regards to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people rights. So this year, somewhere around end of this year, Australia is going to be facing a referendum, which is called the Voice to Parliament. And um, those referendum is basically to decide whether the people agree with altering their constitution, altering the Australian constitution to recognize first peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. So what this voice uh, to Parliament would do once, if it passes the referendum, which we are hoping it will, it will basically be able to have a more thorough consultation in regards to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people before Parliament makes laws in regards to this community. So that's what Australia will be facing this year, and we have been uh, working on that. Wow, thank you. I believe the our audience has gained a better understanding of your job scope. Oh, so moving on to the next question, were there any notable challenges you faced due to work environment or culture 
cultural differences while working as an advocacy advisor abroad? Ah, uh, that, that's a good question. Thank you. And uh, it is something that uh, is, is important to address. I think a lot of people who work overseas or, um, yeah, people who work overseas have this very, very idealistic perception of working overseas, but it's definitely a challenge and a struggle. It's not so easy and it's not the fairy tale perception that people give us. Yeah, so I didn't know that until I experienced it for myself. And to be honest, moving from Malaysia and working in Malaysia for over seven years, and I never studied overseas, so I was a University of London external student, so I did not have overseas education experience. And so it was my first time venturing overseas in terms of having living there, residing there, having a job and a life there. So um, it was a very different experience. And of course, there are a lot of cultural differences as well. But I felt studying my career in a whole new country for the first time, um, I wasn't very confident. I always doubted myself. So a little bit of low self-esteem there as a, as a first timer. And it, it, you definitely feel a little bit scared. <laughs> Everything feels a little more scary when you're doing it all over again. You're starting from scratch and uh, you're wondering what is the norm here? What is the work culture here? What is frowned upon? What is okay? What am I supposed to do? What am I not supposed to do? So there are a lot of factors, a lot of factors. And of course, cultural differences play a, a big role in this. So one of the first few things that that I experienced when I started working in Canberra was how I write my emails. Yeah, so how I write my emails while through my work experience in Malaysia is we are um, maybe very straight to the point. We are very formal in our emails. So we have. I have the habit of using the term kindly. So when I'm sending a person an email, I would say, uh, kindly refer to the uh, documents attached to this email, right? And that yes. seems totally normal and acceptable and reasonable. And you would think, oh, that's great. That's a great way to write an email, correct? Yes. But apparently not. <laughs> I do it in every email. <laughs> yeah. And and I personally think it's okay because that's what I have been doing, but apparently it's not. So I was told by one of my senior colleagues, it's like, um, Kitty, you, uh, sorry, everybody calls me Kitty since I was young. That's my nickname. Thank so, you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> You're like, uh, Kitty, um, I think you shouldn't use the term kindly in your email. I was very taken aback. I was like, what? And I felt, terrible I felt like I made a big mistake and I was thinking like why why is this not acceptable why is this a problem and so she she explained to me she was very kind when she said it she was very kind and she totally understands that I I it was my first professional experience in Australia and she said oh kindly sounds a little more instructional like you are directing people to do something so I asked her alternatively, what do you think, what do you recommend that I use in alternative to that? And she was like, why don't you just say please? 
like could you please look at the documents attached I was like oh, okay and I never wrote kindly again in any of my emails <laughs> so yeah so th that's one I think that's a great example a very small thing but a, a very significant example of my experience in adapting to the norm in Australia yeah okay thanks for sharing with us so I hope it's beneficial for those who wish to work overseas in the legal field like Miss Katana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, these are all the challenges that you have to prepare yourself. <laughs> so, yeah. question, can you please provide examples of social changes you have contributed as a social policy advisor? As a policy advisor, I don't think... I'm quite new in the role, so I don't think I have effected changes that we can tangibly see. But I definitely would talk about the voice referendum campaign that we um, are working on currently. We have been working on it for months and we are preparing for the referendum. And so, as I mentioned, the referendum question earlier was is to make a constitutional amendment. And we are hoping that. Australia will vote yes. There will be a majority that votes yes in Australia so that the Aboriginal people will be able to enshrine their rights within their constitution. There is always this issue where when you pass a legislation and passing, making an amendment in the constitution. So those who are in the legal field would understand that legislations that are passed can also be revoked by parliament. So that that legislation can be later be abolished, right? And of course, there are due processes to this in Parliament. However, if you make a constitutional amendment, it is um, entrenched and it is difficult to amend or remove it from the constitution. It's not impossible, but it is very difficult. There are a lot of safety nets when you make when something is enshrined in the constitution. So in our campaign, we have been educating Australians on what constitutional amendments are and how they, it would affect them and what is the difference between passing a legislation and making a constitutional amendment and how a referendum can be passed in Australia. So in Australia, a referendum has to be passed through a double majority. So it's not uh, just about obtaining a majority nationwide but it's also about obtaining majorities within states thank you so much for what you have done to make this world a better place we need more people like you in the future to improve the living standards of the marginalized communities oh you are too kind <laughs> okay so the following question in your efforts to promote social justice what are some of the significant challenges you have encountered with um, with the collaborators, the government, or the stakeholders? Okay, uh, that, that's a very uh, interesting question, which actually is a, a big part of everything that I do professionally and also um, in the projects that I have volunteered. So in Malaysia, I used to work with several NGOs. So I was uh, the secretary for one of the NGOs where we provided uh, basic medical care for the urban poor and the homeless community, mainly in KL, but we did some projects in certain states like Pahang and Para, 
and so on and so forth. So some of the challenges that we face, I think one of the biggest challenge that uh, anybody in the not-for-profit not uh, sector would tell you would be limited resources. So in Malaysia, I was a full-time lecturer and I was volunteering with an NGO um, to effect some projects and aids and assistance to the marginalized communities. So our biggest problem was limited resources. We didn't have a steady flow of sponsorship or funding. Most of the time, uh, the group of volunteers, we who's, who, who started um, the NGO and then continued to work with it, most of the time, the resources came from us. And in times where we were successful in a, obtaining a sponsorship and funding, then those were good times. So limited resources is probably one of the biggest challenges that uh, we faced. And also when it comes to collaboration, since you mentioned collaborators, sometimes we collaborate with bigger brands and bigger companies and organizations. And the challenge is that these uh, companies and organizations are quite focused on outlining their brand awareness, which sometimes deviates from the real cause that we are we are fighting for and we are advocating for. So that is a very delicate line and a very delicate uh, balancing act that we as people who are project owners need to do. So we need the sponsorship and funding but we also want the focus to be on the cause that we are standing up for, that we are advocating for. And if there is so much focus on the brand awareness, which I can understand from, uh, from the angle of sponsors, there is something that they need to gain out of it. And, and that is totally justifiable. But on the other side of the fence, this is a challenge for us whether we like it or not, whether uh, people uh, have the courage to admit to this or not, this is the reality. Yeah, it's really not an easy task to promote social justice. Yeah, and different people, different parties have different expectations. So as a, a volunteer and a person who runs the NGO with several other prominent um, people, for us, our our expectation is that there must be good cause. The cause must be protected. Our aims, our goals in helping the people must be achieved in a certain period of time. And But different parties have different expectations. Even um, the people that we serve, the communities that we serve have different expectations. Uh, sometimes their expectation is that we are going to change their lives. I wish I could. But because resources are limited and we are not policy makers from a volunteer and NGO angle, it is hard to have sustainable efforts uh, and long-lasting or long-term efforts. So yeah. that's, that, that's a real challenge. It's difficult to meet everyone's expectation. Uh, may I ask uh, an additional question? Sure. How, do we, how, how does the NGO look for sponsorships? How we look for sponsorships is usually through the networks and uh, our personal networks. So we reach out to people. And the other effective way for us to be known and be seen is through social media. 
So we report our activities, our projects, our events through social media. We give it a good coverage. And a lot of uh, people think, oh, you know, if you want to, if you want to, uh, provide assistance, then don't show it off to the world. But if we don't post it on social media, how would people know what we are doing, the cause that we are fighting for, what we are standing up for, the type of work we do, how much of effort goes into it, and that it is a true cause. It is not a scam. We are not taking money from people and then putting it somewhere or <laughs> investing it or you know spending it. So how would people know what is our real work if we don't put it on social media? Reached out to uh, several um, organizations, private companies, banks, big corporate companies have reached out to us by looking at our work and following our work through social media. So social media has been a great platform for us to put our work there and to be seen and to encourage people and say that, hey, if you want to ever do charity, if you ever want to do a project, we are a good platform for you to reach out to. And at the same time, social media also allows us to influence the younger generation in getting involved in voluntary work and what is uh, what are the things that takes place behind the scenes? Yeah. All right. Thanks for sharing. So we really appreciate what you have done for the society. Okay. Um, moving on to the next question. Could you please share your experience working with various NGOs and what you have learned about the vulnerable communities? All right. What I've learned about vulnerable communities, I'm going to speak in context of Malaysia. Okay. And... In regards to that, from my experience, we know that there is a big homeless community in uh, Kuala Lumpur. So we know that. So where we used to run our clinics is Jalan Hang Lekiu, which is right smack in the center of the city. So we used to set up our mobile clinics there at 9 p.m. every Wednesday without fail. So everybody would come back from work and most of the time I'll be in my work clothes, all my heels that I want to work that day, we would set up the clinic and then we will already have a long line of patients that are waiting for us, for us to set up an open clinic. So we have volunteer doctors, we have volunteer pharmacists, they are all qualified and they see patients while people like me who don't who do not come from a medical background i handle the administration of the clinic so the registration forms how to talk to patients whether there are any other issues that we need to look into if if somebody is so sick that we need to call the ambulance uh, or get them into emergency so these things are what i look into and i also handle the recruitment of uh, volunteers so I would brief the volunteers and say okay this is what we're doing this is what we're doing and and when you volunteer in um in such uh scenarios and circumstances you meet very different characters so the homeless community is are is a community that is marginalized I think we need better policies to look into this. So when you talk to, we call them patients because we are a clinic. And when you talk to patients and you hear about their story, everyone has a different story. 
So one one person that we met was a professor, a retired oh, professor okay. who who spoke fluent, beautiful English, and he was homeless. So of course we don't know what are the nitty gritty details that happened. He his family had left him, and he was on the streets, and. Um, there are so many other stories. There was another uncle who whose daughter was uh, a doctor. So his wife and he had he had only one child, the daughter, and they had left him for reasons that I wouldn't mention. But um, he could speak very good English. He had worked in Europe. He was an engineer by profession, and he he too was on the streets. And these are stories that just doesn't sit with you right and and you would feel like why how did these people end up here but everybody has a different story yeah and there are also migrants who have been probably exploited by their employers and have had been abused or have had their documents confiscated and they have nowhere to go they can't return to their home country they are not able to get a job because they have no documents. They are not able to access medical care and they're on the streets. Yeah, most people don't know about this because we are sitting home comfortably. It's true. So many, many of us um, are not aware of these things. And some of us think that the world and the circle that we live in and we socialize with is the world. But there's so much beyond that. Yeah, we are taking things for granted. Yeah, and another problem that we see with the homeless community is that uh, because they live on the streets, and of course there are a lot of crimes that take place among them and externally, uh, they get robbed. So they lose the little belongings that they have. They lose their wallet. They lose their IC. And the problem is that when you lose your IC, for an example, you can make a police report and then they would give you a temporary IC and that would work. But if you live on the streets, you're probably getting robbed every week. And every time you lose your IC, there is, uh, I think I think by the third time, there is a fine of a thousand ringgit that oh. you need to pay for losing your IC. These people have no money to... I mean, they live on the streets. They clearly do not have 10 ringgit as opposed to a 1,000 ringgit. How are they going to pay the fine? So if they don't pay the fine, uh, they don't have their IC. They cannot go to Clinic Kasehatan for medical care. They cannot go to the government hospital if they are ill. They are not able to get birth certificates if they're having kids. So it becomes a vicious cycle. Thank you, Kirtana. So... What a question. We noticed that many students in BAC are active in NGOs as well. <laughs> Could you share some of your strategies to manage time effectively? How do you balance significant involvement in NGOs while advancing your career and also focus on improving your cooking hobby? <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think there isn't a formula for time management. I think different things work differently for different people. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you were to tell me about students 
volunteering. It's great to volunteer and you're a student. You have so much freedom and um, I think you you have time and you have uh, a good uh, group of friends usually that you can do it with and you're all about doing the same thing. Like you're going to college, so that's probably common among y'all. But when you start adulting and become working adults, you're all on different schedules. So to manage your time is important to prioritize. Always have a calendar, I would say. I think it has helped me a lot to put uh, everything that I need to do in my calendar. So my calendar arranges what goes where. And it is also important to prioritize what is urgent and what is important at that time. So urgent needs to be done immediately. Important is you got to get it done, but you probably have a little bit more time before you look at it. And uh, for me, um, I think more than time management is is the passion and the motivation to be there, to show up and turn up. Right. And I think that's what it was for me. So as I told you earlier, as a full-time lecturer, so on certain days, I have like four slots of tutorials. So that is six hours of teaching, right? Six hours of teaching and I would drive back in in traffic and if if it's too much of a commute because if i'm if i'm teaching in the pj campus then i would have to drive all the way into the city center i would just wait at work finish up some work or meet my fellow volunteers for dinner they also would be after work and then we'll go but you know we start setting up at at 9 p.m and we only finish past midnight and then next morning i would have a class to do at 9 a.m yeah does, so does i take up a lot of time uh volunteering yeah well it's once a week the main thing is once a week the clinic runs once a week on the back end we will have other things to do like reach out to sponsors uh email correspondence and sometimes to meet clients uh, we say clients, but that's probably not the right word to meet patients. And uh, sometimes they are in their house and they're not able to come to clinic or we, we get a, a report or an alert from their neighbors or friends that, okay, this family, they're very poor, they're struggling, the mother is ill and immobile. Would you be able to get your doctors to come and see them? They can't they are not able to arrange transport to go to the government hospital and those things. So we do that also on days that we are not running the clinic. So, but if you are passionate about these things, then it is, it does not become a chore. You don't feel like, Oh my God, why am I here? You know, you feel like, yeah, whatever we are doing here is amazing. We need to get better. Um, in six months time, we need to be better. We probably need to obtain more funding. We need to work on this. We should do this project. So I think if you're, if you are not passionate about it, it's, it's very hard to do this work. Yeah. But if you have your heart in the right place and your intentions are there, you're very intentional about what you do and your intention is about the greater good, time management would not be a problem because by hook or by crook, you will make it work. Yes. That's so true. 
<laughs> you only enjoy volunteering if you are truly passionate about it. Yeah, it's either it's either you love it or you hate it. So so it is for some people and it is not for some people and I don't judge those people. So many of my friends are like, oh, maybe this is not for me. I totally understand. So I would say then you can contribute in another way. So they will help us find sponsors or they will give us donations and 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 those things. So it, it's always good. And charity is not just only one way. There's so many ways to do charity. Thanks for sharing with us. It really helps the student in effective time allocation. Next. So this is the last question of the day. Can you please share some of your experience as the election campaign officer? And also, uh, do we encourage law students to engage in such volunteer opportunities? Oh, my election campaign experience, it was amazing. It was one of <laughs> probably one of the best experiences in my life. Uh, so <laughs> I was part of the election campaign, Malaysia's 15th general election campaign. And um, I've always been very passionate about politics and um, I have great interest in it. So I, I've always done a lot of reading in it. And if you didn't know, I was public law lecturer for like seven years. <laughs> and um, I would encourage uh, my students. I said, whatever, wherever your political ideology lies, I said, work on it. Join a political party. See if that's for you, you know. And um, so for me, it happened by accident. It was not intentional. So last October, I, I came back uh, to Malaysia to spend some time with my family uh, and my, par my parents and so on. And it was then, I think before I came back was when they announced when the elections would be. And I was really excited. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to miss the election. So I'll be there. I'll be able to vote. That's amazing. I don't have to stress myself with, with whether my postal vote has reached or has not reached, right? So I was really excited. And so on the day where the nominees, the party nominees were announced, my dad had sent me a, a WhatsApp message and said hey your friend has been nominated so my friend was nominated friend. Uh, yes in wow. my constituency in my hometown so I was really excited so I I sent her a message and I congratulated her and then um, she said uh, Kitty I know you're back home and um, I have to ask you would you be happy to join my campaign and I was like okay wow this is amazing, but I felt really guilty because I had come home to spend time with my parents. <laughs> so I was thinking, oh my God, what are my parents going to say? I'm, if I commit to this campaign, I'm going to be very busy. Anyway, I went back. I'm from Ipoh. So I went back to Ipoh to spend time with my parents. And um, my parents are also very have great interest in politics. So when they heard um, my friend had invited me to join the campaign, they were like, you should go. You should definitely go. And I was like, I will be very busy. Are you guys okay with that? They were like, no, no, you have to go. You can't miss this opportunity. So I was like, yes, let's <laughs> do this. So I was there from the Hari Penamaan Shalun, which started on a Saturday, which is the first day of campaign. And uh, I told myself, okay, I 
can't do this to my parents. So I told my friend, I will come into office and help you maybe two or three days a week. But since I was there for Hari Penaman Chalun with my parents, they were really excited. So we were there at Stadium Indramulia in Ipoh. My journey in the campaign started on that day and we worked for really long hours. So we would go into office at 8 a.m. and our candidate, our Chalun, would have um, an entire days of itinerary ready for her to canvas and campaign and where she needs to go and it was great so we did a lot of work with uh, mainstream media so like newspapers news channels and all that so it was not easy to give them the slots at the same time you need the slots so that your candidate is known and her manifesto is known so it was not easy to find slots it was not easy but that's why we worked around the clock honestly in the middle of campaign, nobody in the campaign sleeps. <laughs> nobody in the campaign sleeps. Everyone is working around the clock. So we need to handle her social media. We need to know what exactly to post. When every post is very intentional, the words that we use, the timing that we post, uh, how does the candidate look in the photo? What is she wearing? Are the colors in line with the party, the political party? So we did all that and we went canvassing and uh, meet the people. So we would go to the markets, we would go to the coffee shops and we would talk to people. We would set up Charama, Charama. And um, one of the most significant things that I did um, as campaign officer would was uh, to organize a fundraising dinner for 700 people in five days. We had to print the tickets and sell the tickets in five days. Wow. Yeah. It's and like a huge a, <laughs> Yeah, we had a huge turnout. We had like, I think about eight to 900 people. There were people standing outside of the venue just to listen to the talks. So it was really great. And I also had the experience of campaigning with top politicians like Tan Sri Lim Kitsiang, who came all the way from uh, Penang to endorse uh, the candidate that I was campaigning for. So we campaigned with him for like half a day. And also YB Ngakoming, who's currently a minister. Also YB Kula. And I also campaigned with activists such as Dato Ambiga and also Ivy Josiah. So it was great. And uh, behind the scenes in the campaign, uh, the room that we work in, the campaign officer, is called Bilik Garakan. So um, so many things uh, happen there. And it's a very high-pressure environment because you're exhausted. And we only go to sleep at like 3 a.m. And then we are back again at 7 a.m. And uh, But we had a very young team. So everyone were in like in their 20s and 30s. People who are older are not going to like this. <laughs> yeah, so we had very young people in, in, the, in the core team. And uh, we also had a lot of fun together. So it is a lot of hard work, long hours, extremely exhausting. 
it is a very high pressure environment. There's so many factors to consider. Um, but it was amazing. We we formed really good connections, really good network, really good friendship. We would joke and laugh and tease each other, but the work will go on. So it, it was amazing. It was amazing. Every every small part you play is a change is affecting a change so would i recommend this to students whether they are law students or not law students or whether they are working adults i would recommend this to everyone everyone has a part to play everyone needs to get involved in any way that they can and and that is really important so i would definitely encourage this and as long as it is a contribution it will be valued and somewhere down the line it will make a difference uh here comes the end of the podcast thank you katana thank you for your insightful sharing i believe that it will enlighten the listeners so thanks for listening to 50 shades of pink show some support by listening to our other podcast episodes on spotify stay tuned for the next episode of 50 shades of pink see you thank you z thank you for having me today it's been an absolute pleasure and i would definitely support you and talk about your podcast and all the other wonderful guests that you have had over and will be having over to my friends and family